0: analytics with mike lewis the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics here's your host mike lewis marketing professor at emory university Hey everybody, this is Mike Lewis with the Fanalytics Podcast. Today I'm joined by Alex Notice from Emory University. How you doing, Alex?
1: I'm doing well. Very excited to be here. Thanks uh, for having me on.
0: I'm excited to have you because, you know, sports analytics, as I probably a lot of people listening know, sports analytics is an interesting professional field in that people come from everywhere you know there are a lot of career tracks where you know you got to have a CPA to be an accountant you gotta have an MBA to be an investment banker but the world of sports analytics is still this kind of grassroots well it can come from the grassroots you know historically it's and I don't want to rely too too much on cliches but it almost seems like you know you're in your mom's basement and you're yep. you're collecting numbers you're doing analytics you're putting that stuff out there on the web, and someone is finding you i mean I, I remember um Alex is a student in my sports analytics class, and you know just to do a shout out to Neil Greenberg. I remember when we first had Neil in and Neil does some great analytics stuff for the the Washington Post. I I think, you know, Neil came from actually sort of doing analytics as a hobby. And I apologize for getting some of the details wrong, Neil. Doing analytics as a hobby uh, related to the NHL and got picked up. Um, So, you know, this is where this stuff has come from. It's like sort of a true meritocracy, or at least historically it's been that. Sounds like a
1: dream. Thanks for giving (laughs) me the platform.
0: So what I want to talk to Alex about is Alex has done some really interesting stuff related to the three-point shot. Uh, Alex why don't you give us a little bit of a little bit of an intro to it and then we'll just start talking about
1: it sure so uh, listen the interest kind of came from the fact that when you look at the numbers the NBA is having its best offensive season ever right now Uh, and that's evident in the fact it has got the highest points per game since 1990 it's the second highest ever they're turning the ball over fewer than ever before and the highest ever effective field goal percentage. And defense is a little worse, but when you look at the reasons, it's really all just coming from the three-point line.
0: Okay, th- this is a little bit of an aside, but it is, you know, one of the things that I think is, uh, actually, this is a complete aside, but, you know, the last couple of years I've seen this interest in who's the goat, right? Yeah. And... So those numbers tell me that, you know, point out an issue with comparing players across eras, right? It's like inflation. It's just different.
1: Yeah. And listen, whereas teams were shooting threes on 3% of shots when the league introduced the line in 1986, this season 36% of shots were threes. And the league's best offensive team... Is shooting them over fifty percent of the time. Rockets are shooting fifty-two percent of their shots from behind the line.
0: What what did you, you say the number is now? It's thirty
1: thirty-six percent of shots are threes this season.
0: Okay, to uh, add a little bit of historical perspective of it, you know, the the game used to revolve around guys like Patrick Ewing, mm-hmm. Akeem Olajuwon, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, you know, and so so the the game used to be about throwing the ball yeah. down low. For a high percentage shot. Absolutely. And now, I guess we could say it's not exactly a high percentage shot, but it's uh, get the ball out there for, we've gone from a high percentage shot to a highly valuable shot.
1: Right. I mean, it's all about expected value. The Rockets, though they take 45 threes per game, they're 20th in percentage. It's just the numbers telling them to go for more.
0: Okay, so let's, let's stop there, sort of track this back to academics for a second. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I don't know, so when, when you talk to the folks, Alex, you probably don't have a little aside to talk about academic concepts, right? Right. Expected value. What's expected value?
1: Expected value, we're just talking about, I mean, it, it is what it sounds like. When you look at the numbers based on the probability and the number of points that you're going to be rewarded with, what points you can expect out of a shot that okay. you take on the floor.
0: And and so this is a great concept, key concept for a lot of sports analytics. I mean, so you know, in the in the NFL, if we're talking about kicking an extra point versus going for two. Right. Expected value, you know, mm-hmm. for each action, how many points you're going to generate. Um, shots on goal. Now they want to talk a lot in, in soccer, expected goals rather than actual goals. Right. And so in basketball, you know, you take a shot. What are you going to get out of it? and three
1: points is more than two and that's what's leading i mean it's interesting we had um, maxim horowitz come into our class kind of asked him where where you see this line in the sand as for where teams because every year number of threes is going up
0: so so max uh horowitz is a analytics person for the atlanta hawks recently took a job in atlanta used to be in the the nba offices and you know he he was gracious enough to come to class and one of the one of the things he had done and, and he not giving away any proprietary of course secrets, but some analyses that the NBA office has done in terms of looking at issues related to the three point shot or and even stuff some of the stuff related where he had one table out there like the the increased prevalence of the three guard lineup, which mm-hmm. closely related. Right.
1: Uh, because team listen, the new NBA and this is also part of what my paper's on, uh, is is this, this lineup where you have a James Harden type who can make the step back three is the new skyhook of today's NBA that and all statisticians love. And you have a lineup where now it's it's two, usually three guys who are what they call three and D's. They can shoot and play defense and switch on multiple mm-hmm. positions because every team is just running spread pick and roll these days and then one sledgehammer big man to set all the picks. And that's the, what the Rockets have done. The, all of a sudden, the Brooklyn Nets have kind of recreated that lineup. They're second in most of these three point volume statistics and having a far better season than anyone ever mm-hmm. conceived on a low payroll. That's kind of the new money ball approach in today's league.
0: It's interesting, right? And I want to maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you did in the analysis sure. um, rather than have me sort of muddle and perhaps steal <laughs> some of the thunder. All right.
1: Um, so, I, so what I wanted to see was like I said about Harden. Uh, the new skyhook in today's NBA is this contested three pointer because. Well, the one, right.
0: Well, let's 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 even take a step back. What do you mean the new skyhook? So what's the skyhook?
1: So the skyhook was the patented move of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. It added about ten years to his career. and My dad tried to learn it so it could add about five years to his <laughs> one-on-one game
0: against you in the driveway. Yep. yep. Okay.
1: Um, and essentially what it involves is launching a shot from way behind your head. Long winding release because it's unblockable from that low. okay Can't defend. It's hard to make, but if you have the motion down, you will make it and it will add, like I said, years to your career.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's kind of a great thing because I do, you know, it, you know, Alex, what are you, 20? Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting that we're talking about that you're familiar with the uh, Kareem Abdul it's, yeah Jabbar's sky hook.
1: Haven't seen that one in a while, <laughs> not in today's NBA. But anyway, so so what Harden's doing these days is, you know, he's got this step-back three in his bag of tricks that he, he probably goes to more than any other move. And the whole thing is if he's, you know, literally running backwards as he launches this ball, the defender can't block it. It's just hard to make. Okay. Some guys have it in their bag of tricks. D'Angelo Russell in uh, Brooklyn is another great example. Um, I wanted to see essentially where there was room for growth in the
0: taking of these step-back threes. Okay. So I went through everyone in the NBA. So a specific kind of shot and so the evolution of the game so if you're a coach working you know on game tactics we'll say three-point shot has a higher expected value because you you know you higher percent the the reward versus the risk trade-off you might say translates into more three-point shots you are now sort of digging down into something almost a specialized version of the three
1: Kind of, I mean, what essentially what I wanted to see is, like I said, I want I wanted to analyze, see where there's still room for growth in this blossoming of three pointers, and it's a real, it's a three point explosion, you know. Like I said, Rockets are taking 52 percent of their shots mm-hmm. from three. I wanted to see is is there still
0: room for teams to take even higher volume and at what cost? Do you, Do you know what the like the Rockets' trend is? Is this um what is the shape of the trend? So obviously more three points. Is it and is every team increasing the rate every year? Just about. So
1: so here's a a great stat going off that. So this season, half of the league's thirty teams. So fifteen out of thirty are on pace to shoot at least 2400 threes over the course of the season. Now only twelve teams. Have ever done that okay. in the history of the league, and eleven of those were in the last two seasons.
0: You know, I don't want to, I don't want to put you into a direction that you haven't considered. Have you looked at the correlation between winning rates and increasing three point? I attempts? did try to
1: run a regression on essentially just yeah three the percentage of shots the teams were taking from three and their win percentage from last season. Unfortunately, very low p value or sorry high p value uh, because. Just not enough sample data. The real, like I said, this proliferation of threes has been really two seasons. Mm -hmm. And the truth is that, like, another variable that would really skew that data is that when teams are down by a lot, they start chucking threes.
0: Right. It ends up being this kind of the, you know it's, it's it's a hail mary it's a hail mary but it's sort of a high percentage hail mary right, right?
1: It's, it's like when blake Bortles passing stats will look good at the end of a game though because the jaguars are down 35 right. and they're just throwing the whole second
0: half from an analytics perspective though this is an interesting problem react to this um is something to potentially to think about so if you can look at the number of threes that each team is taking and you were going to relate that to winning percentage, then in, in some ways you're sort of destined to not come up with a significant effect. Right. right? Because, well, if everyone's increasing mm-hmm. the rate of threes and you can only win, you know, only 50% of the yeah. teams are going to be one. True. That what you need to do is something um, a little bit more advanced, something called, uh, and, I, and I'll talk about this on the back half of the podcast, sure. is a difference in difference analysis, okay. which is essentially trying to look at essentially which team is increasing the rate of the threes faster than the right. others. Because that'd be a fascinating thing to look at. Mm-hmm. Right? Is, is this translating into, you know, if you're talking about where is there still room from growth, then in some ways as a coach, I guess the answer is to figure out where that room is and immediately go to there. Right, right?
1: and uh, and listen, the hard thing is, and I just want to pose the flip side of all of these this uptick in threes, is that a lot of people point out the fact that they think that the playoff game is a different game in nature than the regular season. You got more help defense, players move on offense more without the ball. I want to point out the fact that last season in game 7 of the of the Western Conference Finals, you had the Rockets, like I said these pioneers of statistics, they're shooting over 50% from threes. James Harden took 13 three-pointers that game and made two. Mm. So there's an old expression in basketball, which is you live by the three, you die by the three.
0: Have you ever looked at um, when he's taking the threes? Can you uh, – th- you can generate that data, right, from like, like basketball like reference Like winning the game? Yeah.
1: I'm sure the – the NBA has very advanced tracking data these days okay. out there.
0: But is it – so it – Potentially, that'd be an interesting thing to pull as well, right? Mm-hmm. So it kind of goes back to your point of when are these three-point shots being taken? It's almost sort of, uh, you know, I don't know, sort of the standard operating offense right. versus the last minute. We, you know, we're, we're losing, so let's just turn this into yeah. chaos kind of a match.
1: Yeah. It's, it's true. I mean, j- just having once that game, though, I will say it, it was uh it seemed like they were one-trick ponies, and they also didn't have Chris Paul, so that definitely affected them as well. Mm-hmm. But I'm just pointing out the fact that, yes, these threes, they're increasing – and some people, some analysts out there see the NBA eventually, unless the line is moved, going to 70% from threes. But I do think there's something to be said about the fact that when the game's at the highest level, it is they are hard to rely on if that's all you got.
0: Okay. Well, well, so let's get into the... Into the study? and Yeah, into the... Sure. The, the gritty details.
1: Right. So I wanted to see exactly where this growth could come from. And the hard thing is that you can't just suggest necessarily that teams pass up threes for twos, assuming that their threes, that, that, that the rate at which they make threes won't change at all. Mm-hmm. So what I what I tested was I took all the players saying, in the NBA. Can I stop you first? Yeah.
0: Say that again because you used the word assuming.
1: Uh, if I wanted to adjust players' shot selection from the previous season and see – essentially how they could have improved their decision-making
0: and their decision-making here is a three versus a two right okay so if I've so I'm, a, I'm just player XYZ and you're looking at it I've taken 20 shots and you know seven were three-pointers your study looks at the advisability of if I had taken eight or nine
1: right okay just playing with the expected value we, we essentially took these players, so the list I ended up narrowing it down to is players whose tightly contested three-point percentage, which is their percentage of threes that they make with a defender within zero to two feet of them. Okay. We increased those players' three-point attempts from the season by
0: 25%. Okay, so you're dealing with a sample of three-point shooting specialists in a way. Right. These are the guys this that— This is the new breed. These are the long-range guys that you know can have someone hanging off on them and still be effective. Yeah, or at the, least, they're the they're the studs of the three point world. Yeah, the okay. JJ
1: Reddicks, your Steph Curry's, James okay. Harden's, guys who, like I said, you know, they're like pool players in mm-hmm. their precision that they can have a hand in their face, not be able to look at the hoop, but just have the motion okay. so memorized.
0: And the sample is 58 players?
1: So I was astonished to find out that there are 58 players. Yeah, that's who's, two
0: per team. That's kind of a, astonishing.
1: Whose three-point, whose tightly contested three-point percentage is at least two-thirds of their two-point percentage, meaning that the expected value of okay. a tightly guarded three for them is better than the expected value of a two. And especially given that like most of these players, when they're taking twos, they're taking them because they're wide
0: open. Okay. Did you also, when you're filtering and creating this sample, did you look at the number that they were shooting? Yes,
1: we do a minimum attempt. So, at first, By the way, when, at first when we did this without the tightly contested factor, just to see how many there when were. You're saying,
0: when you're saying we, you're just talking about just the me. royal we. Okay.
1: <laughs> just okay. me. Um, there were over 150 players in today's NBA who's – normal three-point percentage the expected value is greater than taking it to
0: um i like some of this stuff like i I like the fact that you're looking at this contested three because you know that ends up being a nice control for they can take more of right right? it's it's
1: easier to suggest that a player could feasibly pass up a Mm two-pointer for a closely guarded three-pointer okay um And what you found is, like I said, 58 guys, and a lot of them, I have to say, kind of underpaid and underutilized. So just some names in particular that we found, Troy Daniels, Rodney Hood, Wayne Seldon, Wayne Ellington, Austin Rivers, and these guys have been actively this season increasing their attempts and Mm -hmm. been utilized more, but they're all on less than $2 million a year contracts. Another noteworthy find that we came across is that the Lakers, as presently constructed, have
0: zero of these specialists. (laughs) Let's let's stay here for a second, because I think you just said something really interesting in this world mm-hmm. you've identified guys that may be underpaid right okay that's kind of classic moneyball stuff isn't that's it? that's what we were trying to do okay so looking for market imperfections mm-hmm. you know so guys you, you, you're identifying a type of player that's really valuable and now you're identifying a subsample within that group who are underpaid i suppose the next level to this might be well what's sort of unique about those underpaid guys what's what's similar across the underpaid guys are they short do they come from you know
1: i mean what's i I think they're most of the time you could say they're pretty Mm one-dimensional uh that this is what they do they come on the floor like i said jj reddick who is really just out there to space the floor and take threes but what Mm -hmm. we're trying to get at is the fact that these guys could be worth even more if they were just allowed to shoot more
0: Ryan Anderson in particular, and he gets paid a good amount, but this guy makes... For all of you sports agents out there who want a little analytics ammunition to represent your athletes, this is... um This is at least directionally the way to go.
1: Ryan Anderson makes, four, and I, I wanted to double check this number before I said it out loud because it's astonishing, but Ryan Anderson makes 48% of tightly contested mm. three-pointers. That is jump off the page.
0: Um, do you have the difference between regular three-pointed and contested three-pointers?
1: Yeah, I I, would, I actually think his tightly contested rate is higher than his regular rate because no one in the league shoots 48% from three this year.
0: And see, you know, one of the places that I might go with this is looking at the difference in the those two statistics yeah he's 38 percent from three normally this season okay. and i mean you know so sample size are sort of legit on both types of shots mm-hmm. see so, you know, this is where i think analytics kind of next level stuff when you can start to find let's say these this is a guy that potentially guys that potentially don't care if they're guarded you know i mean so you it's know, unique first level right you're just going to look at three point uh shooting percentage second or third level then you're looking at how well they compare when they have a guy in their face it's
1: remarkable stuff when you look at these, the rate at which these guys can make the hardest shot in basketball
0: okay so what did you do and what did you going back to, what did you do in your analysis
1: so my analysis essentially like i said i tried to, un- to identify potentially undervalued players and then we looked also for just rooms and- so
0: how did the mechanics of the analysis work though
1: Like I said, just increasing their attempts and applying the expected value to their points per game. So
0: you were just straight out looking at the data, just driven by the data.
1: Yep. And then we we broke this down by team and saw which teams could have improved their standing within the league's ranks offensively the most by increasing their tightly contested three-point attempts. Okay,
0: so step one is identifying key players, and Mm -hmm. then step two is then mapping back where these players are in terms of who they're playing for in the league? Right. Okay. And, and
1: seeing how we could have impacted their team's overall scoring output.
0: And how did that turn out?
1: Well, the Dallas Mavericks went from 28th in scoring to 14th. That was the biggest yeah. jump that we saw. And that was notably because they've got guys like Cook, or at least they had uh, Yogi Ferrell was a big one for them, J.J. Barea, and Dirk Nowitzki has a great tightly contested mm-hmm. three-point percentage that, like I said, potentially being very underutilized. Uh, The biggest drop of any team was the Los Angeles Lakers because they don't have any three point specialists. And I think that when you look at how a team like LeBron James misses the playoffs in a given season, that's not irrelevant data that they're built more for the old NBA. Magic Johnson's running that team. He, I think he kind of wanted to build it in that Showtime image, guys who could really run in transition and play good defense like Rajon Rondo, Lance Stevenson. but to keep up with the inflation of scoring in today's NBA, you got to have shooters and you got to have this this rare breed like we said there's on average two of them per team.
0: Well, let's let's talk about the Lakers for a second. What do you think the pushback would be from the Magic Johnson apologists out there. And that's that's not the right word, but the, the guys that my sense is that team was built opportunistically. Yes. And but but I think part of that I'm not gonna claim any insight into how that team was built or what the thinking was. That some of these guys, let's say high volume with a high volume three point shooter, would that be detrimental to LeBron James's game? Or would that be no, something I that think he would be- that be something that he would not Want. No, I think
1: it would be beautifully complimentary to LeBron James's game. Okay. When you look at the teams that he's played the best on, mm-hmm. looking at the Miami Heat, probably 2013-14, and last season's Cavs that he somehow bodied to the finals. And these teams were loaded with guys from this okay. list. James Jones, Kyle Korver, J.R. Smith is on this list. Kyrie Irving is on this list. He plays well when he's surrounded by shooters. I think that... And it's interesting because there was a report that came out that the Lakers coach, Luke Walton, he really wanted them to keep Brook Lopez mm-hmm. uh, in the off season, But they said no. They ended up signing JaVale McGee from the Warriors and all these other guys to one-year contracts.
0: Well, then what do you think about um, – Brook Lopez
1: is reigning threes this season in Milwaukee.
0: Well, what do you think about then the possibility of Anthony Davis? I mean, given what a major storyline that was, I mean, that have worked?
1: I think that well, one. I think that the Lakers kind of undid themselves in showing their cards so early and so obviously with that, making themselves so they really antagonized the Pelicans into wanting to make that deal, away from wanting to make that deal with them. However, they antagonized their
0: their roster as right, well, right? Literally, literally.
1: I mean, everyone knew. I mean, everyone on the whole team knows that LeBron had them on the trade block, yeah. and, and that's just too chaotic an environment to play team basketball mm-hmm. in. But nonetheless, listen, at this point, LeBron's got three year, two, two to three years left on his contract. And when you have LeBron James on your team, you do whatever. Like, you, your window is now. There's no long-term mm-hmm. view. It, it's that, That's what you get when you bring him in. That's what you have to sell him on. Anthony Davis is a superstar. He's a top four player in the NBA. You do whatever it takes to get him because uh, the two of them would be a Kobe-Shaq type combo that could transcend any era, in my opinion.
0: You think? I mean, so that that's kind of interesting. So you think, because I, I think this is a, a big theme in analytics in some ways. It, it almost echoes like the Charles Barkley kind of approach to analytics, right? right? It's like the the notion that, well, you know, analytics are great on the periphery, but when you just have, you know, stars and stars, that's when you're actually going to win, right? When you have the superstars. Not right. The-
1: and, and he's also just pointing to the preservation of that, that older style of play. You know, it's crazy because analytics would tell you that there's no place in today's NBA for Bernard King. Yeah who led the NBA in scoring for several seasons
0: heard stories about him my whole childhood um <laughs> oh you know <laughs> this is this is one of the great things and it's sort of one of the tragedies of multi-generational fandom it's like when we talk about three-point shooting it's like i want to talk about a guy named scott skiles from michigan yeah. state and i mean so y- you're kind of nodding like you know who he is yeah but it's like you know a diff- different eras um, i mean god that guy it's that tough. kid dribbling across and just sort of launching from three-point range was even as a illinois fan was awesome to behold but mm-hmm. Different era.
1: Different era. And he was ahead of his time when you look back. So it was like a Steve Kerr who's now at the forefront of this mm-hmm. movement as well.
0: Yeah, and but, you know, Bernard King is an interesting thing. And so for those of you watching or listening, you know, well, how would you describe Bernard King's game? M-
1: the way it was described to me by my dad when I was a kid, which is that he had the unstoppable turnaround mid-range jumper. Mm-hmm.
0: The mid-range jumper. So that shot at about 10 to 12 feet. And it's interesting, right? Flick his wrist, have it out in a second. And it's interesting, right, when you look at sort of the the shot charts where people were shooting, you know, you look at historical shot charts, right? You saw a ton of stuff around Mm -hmm. the rim, and then you saw a bunch of stuff in that mid-range game, right? Right. And it makes sense. The mid-range game was avoiding who? It was avoiding... The big men. It was avoiding Kareem and... um, David Robinson. Elijah Wan and all these guys. That shot has disappeared now, right?
1: I mean, it's interesting. The reason the Rockets and there, there was an article in Sports Illustrated that came out a few days after the Rockets first traded for James Harden when he was back as the when, when he was considered the Sixth Man of the Year, hmm. and they were talking about this this wave of analytics. And they I'll never forget it was the first time I'd seen a heat map of where players were shooting from, and they point out the fact that the Rockets made this move because they felt he was undervalued. The reason being. That all of Harden's shots, and this is still true to this day, he takes from either right around the three point line or within two feet of the hoop. Mm He never takes a mid-range it's jumper. It's almost
0: like he figured out the stats without running any numbers. Right? And, that,
1: and that's what his whole game is on. He keeps the ball really close mm-hmm. to himself. He makes you come real close to him and guard, guard him right in his face. And if you're too close, he'll take you right to the rim and get fouled. If you're too far away, he's just going to take that
0: three-pointer. Yeah, let me ask you this, changing directions a little sure. bit. Sure. Where would you want to go with this analysis next? If you had infinite time and infinite resources, where would you take it next? I want to find that
1: line in the sand really badly. I want to find that point past which it's too much for teams. And maybe the league pushes back the three-point line before then. I do know that that's something that the NBA has floated around. It would fundamentally change the game. You'd you'd also have to probably widen the court because otherwise then you're taking out the corner three. But I do think, you know, so Grinnell College is an interesting sample to look at. Grinnell College is a D3 school. They were the one where Jack Taylor was a kid. He scored 138 points in a game. Mm -hmm. And every year
0: they break the record for NCAA scoring.
1: And the, re- and the way they do it. Do you it,
0: follow Grinnell College?
1: It's the only Division three basketball team that I follow, and I go to a school with one.
0: Yeah, they have a kid named Kurt on the team. Do you remember yeah, him? Yeah. That's actually kind of interesting. It's sort of the you know small world kind of stuff. I went to high school with a guy named Mike Curda. Really? Um, who became, at a very young age, the head coach of Mount Carmel High School. Okay. With Norm Van Leer as his assistant coach of all <laughs> For for whatever reason. On his team, when he took over that job, he had, oh God, he had Donovan McNabb on his team (laughs) and he had Antoine Walker on his team. That's incredible.
1: Donovan McNabb played hoops at Syracuse.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, think about that. That is a. Yeah. I I don't know. Mike was probably about 25. And his. So he, he, you know, his kids grew up with a basketball coach and Mm -hmm. have said all sorts of. Uh, you know, maybe not records, but amazing scoring totals right. going through, I think, Eisenhower High School and then playing at uh, Grinnell College. So. And I wonder.
1: I bet you they're shooters, too. Yeah. I and mean, the way Grinnell does it is is unique. It's a unique style of basketball. They full court press everyone. They really don't care about allowing mm-hmm. an easy layup. They'll pretty much let you take the easy layup such that they can get the ball out to their guys. And they've got one or two designated shooters on the floor at all times. These guys are literally just there to catch and shoot. You got one or two other players out there who are just there to set picks and pass, and the other guy is a rebounder. We're and ta- they just
0: launch threes. We're, we're talking about basketball, but this discussion could be a nice lead-in to sort of any kind of general topic about sort of, I don't know I, I don't know how, exactly how to say this, but it's sort of like the same thing of never punt the football. It's
1: like that high school football coach I was going to say who always, only kicks onside kicks. Always go for two, right? right?
0: It's like. Defeating the conventional wisdom, of, like trying something new and, and seeing what happens. Right,
1: And you wonder if the NBA, you know, before they have to push the line back, before, you wonder if the game is going to look like that. Uh, and then the higher level question is you wonder if that's good for the game. And what do you think? My, my my hunch is no, that the traditional fan will be upset by that if basketball literally turns into what looks like a glorified three-point contest, especially in the regular season when players are playing so much more
0: lackadaisical defense. What do you think? Who's the traditional fan? Is that me? The traditional
1: fan is probably, what do they what They say, that demographic? It's like 18 to 49-year-old men. Okay. Um, 18, that's a big. It's a big range, I know. Yeah. But uh, nonetheless, the, the traditional fan likes to see those crossovers, mm-hmm. likes to see nice dribble moves, uh, and as, as magnificent as a Steph Curry is to watch. If this were really blown up, where the game just looked like a Grinnell College, it's not. It's not those fancy contested threes that he's hitting. It's more like it looks like more like an arcade game.
0: Yeah, it's you know it's um it's kind of interesting this idea of let's say relating the because in some ways a lot of what your study is about is analytics driving a stylistic change. Right, and then the question is does that stylistic change end up you know generating more or less fan interest? Right, so it's yeah, kind
1: of... in football, I think it generally de- it definitely will generate more fan interest just to juxtapose because I think people like seeing fourth down. I
0: think mm-hmm. they like seeing onside kicks. I think they like seeing two point attempts. But and react to this, I wonder. It's like so. Just I think our basic takes on this, and I'm just going to guess. Yeah, I grew up in that era of the sort of the classic lineup of the big man, the power forward, the, mm-hmm. the wing forward, point guard, and shooting guard. Right now. You know that so that one through five kind of thing, and yeah, we're it, positionless these yeah. days. And and now I think you're right that it's almost like so. What do people play with now? Uh, a one,
1: a combo. This is how I describe it: to a be bunch boys. of two threes. It's a combo guard who can hit threes and pass at a low turnover rate. He drives the offense. You got the other guys like are, are two threes that th- two th- really like two fours, honestly, that can play wing defense mm-hmm. is the key. They can switch on pick and rolls and they can
0: make threes when open. They don't have to create their own shot. And so, you know, you grew up in kind of this era in this transition you know, mm-hmm. and, and I grew up in sort of this other era and, you know, part of me, you know, wants to say, look, I, I, I do kind of miss that powerful big man. Yeah. You know, that, you know, the pet. The Patrick Ewing down low or the Elijah one or right. Moses Malone these kind of space eaters kind mm-hmm. of dominant guys but I do wonder if that's like is it just because what I grew up with right and so yeah are folks your era gonna look back on the golden age of you know maybe when this swings back and they're like oh god you know in the in the teens you know these, these guys were skilled they could hit from anywhere mm-hmm. and now this is just this ugly grinded out power game
1: well it's interesting you so, wonder you know you have to wonder if there's just gonna be a big man that comes in and swings the pendulum back. Where now everyone on the floor is so playing so differently historically, and now you've got one guy who can really man the post. If that, mm-hmm. what that'll
0: do. But well, or or is it could could it be the other way that? Um, so what if an as all these teams now are built for almost like four guards and one power play? Yeah. I just go to you know. I put two power players down there and see how they react to it, right?
1: I mean, yeah, so that's why I was really excited to see the experiment when you had Anthony Davis and Demarcus Cousins on the same team in New Orleans. Uh, But the truth is, I mean, what's interesting these days with the new breed of big man is that the the new breed of big man, and those were the two best in the NBA when they were on the same team, kind of plays like a guard. Mm -hmm. Both of those guys shoot threes. Both of them have no problem bringing the ball up the court when they want to. Both of them like to run the ball in transition like they're a point guard. And they had a hard time sharing the ball because they like to use up the same spot on the court. And like I said, they both like the ball in their hands a lot. Like Blake Griffin kind of does this too now where he kind of plays like a guard. You have to, like Joel Embiid is kind of the closest we have now to to that modern big man. And he's also on a
0: team where the next best player can't shoot, which is Ben Simmons. So it's kind of interesting. I mean, one of their other guys that they drafted during that process was, you know, Okafor. Right. Who I think of as also a traditional big man. Sledgehammer, absolutely.
1: Uh, And and their next best player after Simmons is a Jimmy Butler, who is very much an old school player in his own right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Doesn't live by the three at all. He's an excellent defender who can take you off the dribble.
0: Well, let's put it out there that, you know, one of the things that I think is, um, one of the things I like about when you think about analytics, Alex, is that I think intuitively you, like, go back and forth between looking at the numbers Mm -hmm. but then also sort of coming back and understanding the game, right? And so when you talk about Jimmy Butler, maybe Jimmy Butler doesn't fit the models, right? Right. But is there a role for a Jimmy Butler on the floor?
1: I think there is a role for Jimmy Butler on a championship team. I think what happened in Minnesota also was kind of this stylistic clash of the the new age and the old age, even just from a locker room perspective Mm -hmm. where he had these young kids that were – a little, I think I think that Carl uh, Anthony Townsend and Andrew Wiggins were probably a little bit lazier than he would like. He seems like a serious guy. <laughs> and he's a very serious yeah. guy. I mean, he the, the day it all blew up was he told the coach that he wanted to play with all the backups in a scrimmage. And then he came out and beat him and was screaming, you guys need me.
0: That's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful <laughs> Revenge thing. And Revenge I, of the old guys. And it,
1: it is kind of a double standard. But I, I love that old school mentality. I think fans love it too. And I think that it will kind of also preserve stylistically some of that game.
0: Yeah, well, and and this will always be the um, at least at least in the near term. You know, in in some ways, I think what we're talking about is intangibles, mm-hmm. and that ability to add intangibles to some of the analytics is. I, I mean, in a way, what you've started, what what you're looking at, the step back three with closely guarded, in a way that starts to get to like this kind of notion of clutch shooting, right? Right. Which, because um, you know, I, I think off offhand would say well you can never get at the intangibles but maybe you can start to get there you know how you play when you're down right mm-hmm. like hustle stats when you're when your team is losing right so maybe we'll get
1: there eventually i mean god knows in the next few years now that this is the first season where every team has their own analytics department that the availability of numbers is only going to grow
0: yeah interesting stuff okay let me give you a chance for one last word on this and right. we'll wrap it up any other thoughts Anything we're,
1: you want to look at beyond the three-point? Like I said, we're working to find that line in the sand. and uh got
0: to be more, you got, you know, you, I.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to find that line in the sand. And, you know, if I had to take this, listen, basketball, I'm obsessed with basketball. I'm really obsessed with football also. And they are lagging behind in terms of the analytics. If you look at it last season, the smart coaches around the leagues were the ones that were going for it on fourth down more mm-hmm. often. Sean Payton... Bill Belichick and I think that this upcoming NFL season if I had to throw out a prediction you're going to see a lot more of that
0: well that was an interesting conversation with Alex what I want to do as a follow-up to that is try and put some context into what Alex is doing in terms of the the project context in particular related to if you're interested in the the field of sports analytics where might you be able to well how should you think about the work that Alex has done and where might you take it as the next level in a lot of ways what alex is talking about is something that i might characterize as a descriptive study okay so we're looking at reality we're looking at what has what has happened in the game and so in the case of the nba we've seen an enormous shift over time in terms of how the game is played with you know the focal variable here being the three point shot so over time the game really shifted from being focused on the big men in the middle who were going to take high percentage shots close into the basket to an emphasis on players that could spread the court and shoot three-point shots. This is um, a great observation to make and and frankly for the field of sports analytics, it is very often the only step that's that's necessary. Looking at data uh, without building statistical models, without you know engaging in complicated mathematics is where all these analytics projects should start and very often it's it's where they should it's where they should finish i mean and this this comes down to some of the realities of how analytics are done and how they're used in in organizations but but that being said the the issue of the 3 point shot is well it, it's something that i i think the, the mathematics in terms of how we might think about the you know analyzing three point shooting or the decision to take more three point shots is something that we see in a lot of in a lot of different games. And this this key construct is something called expected value. Now this this is something that Alex and I touched on a little bit during the conversation. You know the basic idea of expected value is it's a very simple idea. The idea is you know what do you get based on some action and and really it's that simple so in the case of basketball you take a 12-foot jump shot you get 50 percent of the time let's say you make the basket that's two points 50 percent of the time our expected value is one point from taking the shot Okay. in the case of three-point shooting and again this is very simple stuff but very fundamental you take a three-point shot from 23 feet from the basket and you make that 30 Three percent of the time, the expected value of taking that shot is then also one point. So then, you know, in a lot of ways, the question becomes: What should, um, what kind of shot should we be taking? You know, because if the, let's say, the probability of making that twelve-foot shot is only forty percent, then our expected value is below the value of taking that, taking that twenty-three-foot um, shot. So it's um, it, it it's it gets to the, this issue of the expected value of different strategies. Different techniques get to gets to something very fundamental and something that I think you know everyone sort of gets on an intuitive level. But until we quantify it, it's um, it's hard to actually you know parse out or make the right type of decision as to the right strategies. Now this you know and, and I, the three point sh- shot is, is is a great example of this because we have truly seen a revolution in how basketball is played, especially at the pro level. And it's a revolution that, that continues even up until the present day. You know, the, people find themselves asking the question, where, you know, what is the limit in terms of how many three-point shots are going to be taken? Um, but th- this issue of using data to, let's say, determine the expected value of different actions, this is something that we encounter across the whole gamut of sports, really you know for for example and and the, the probably the classic example of this kind of decision making comes from uh, comes from baseball which is you know the b- baseball tends to be the foundation the 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 sport that has the most activity in terms of analytics um it's also the the sport that tends to have the most data it's the sport that tends to be the most discreet in nature and that it tends to be a batter versus a um, a batter versus a pitcher. So there's, there's a lot of reasons for it. And so the fundamental question or sort of one of these great debates, long-term debates about baseball has always been, is it worthwhile to bunt, to do a sacrifice bunt, to move a, um, well, so, so the scenario here is there's a runner on first and there's a batter at the plate. In baseball, a man standing on second base is um, in scoring position basic idea is a single's often going to score a runner standing on second base, not going to score a runner standing on first base. So then the question becomes, is it worth it to do a sacrifice bunt in order to move the runner from first base to second base while adding an out to the offensive team's status? And so this ends up being a question of expected value. So what's the expected value here? the expected value is essentially you know how many runs are we going to score so what is our expected runs in a given inning in the comparison we're making so again you know our earlier comparison was the probability of making a 12-foot two-point shot versus the probability of making a 23-foot three-point shot here the question is what's the expected value of having a runner on first and a batter at the plate with, well, let's sort of make it arbitrary, with zero outs, okay? Versus having a runner on second, a batter at the plate, and one out, okay? So, you know, different game circumstances, right? Trading an out for the runner advancing one base. What's the expected value of being in scenario A, zero outs, man on first, versus scenario B, man on second, one out. Okay. In the game of football, we also have questions about expected value. A real clean example of that might be going for two after a touchdown. So what is the expected value of going for two versus the expected value of essentially just of doing the, the point for the, the, the short kick to score one point? And the mathematics are, again, very similar to the case of the three-point shot. What's the probability that you make a kick after touchdown versus the probability that you actually score when going for two? Pulling the goalie in hockey is another example. So so these things are, I actually think the notion of expected value is probably the core concept for anyone interested in the the realm of on-field or on-pitch or... On court analytics, so when it comes down to in-game decision making, uh, thinking about the expected value of different actions is is, is going to be the fundamental starting point for just about any analysis. So that being said, that's a real simple way of looking at things, and maybe actually not all that helpful. So in the case of in the case of the NFL, the decision to um, kick the ball after a touchdown versus going for two. The mathematics of that are probably pretty easy, right? Very discrete event. I can do either, you know, go for two or do the place kick. For most of these decisions, things are gonna to start to get more complicated pretty quickly. Okay. Even in the case of the three point shot, remember we were talking about taking a shot from twelve feet out versus a shot from twenty-three feet out. So already I'm starting to build some information into that some additional information right it wasn't so much Am I gonna take a two-point shot versus a three-point shot I started to specify some details about the two-point shot right why did I do that okay are all two-point shots the same are all three-point shots the same okay? in, the, in the case of the point after touchdown you know the the scenarios are going to be the same in the case of most sports they're gonna to start to vary right and so a 2 point opportunity that involves a layup well maybe we don't want to bypass that for the 23 footer right but the 12 footer maybe we do okay right? and so this is where analytics statistics come to bear in this discussion about expected value of different a, of different actions is that we very often want to know the probability conditional on some level of detail okay so in the case of basketball where are the shot's going to be in the case of basketball where are the shot's going to be now I, I hope folks are immediately kind of raising their hands quickly or at least you know starting to say hey you know you're leaving something important out of all this and and it's true i am leaving something really important about all this so far in this discussion and this is actually kind of a key part of what alex was talking about there's been no discussion about the players involved so when I'm talking about the probability of a given action being successful or unsuccessful, that is often going to hinge on the players involved. Okay. So, you know, who is in fact, you know, taking that 12 foot or who's taking that 23 foot shot in the case of the, the point after touchdown, what is the probability that the place kicker makes those point after touchdown kicks? Is it, 0.95 0.95 is it 0.98 small difference. Okay, on the other side of it though, and staying with the NFL example for a second, who's our quarterback? Who's our running back? Who's our wide receiver? Who is our tight end? Right. So we're t- we're talking about a relatively close in play. So it may really be a function of our quarterback skills in terms of a short passing game or our running back, uh, the the talent level we have in the backfield. Okay, and so these things are where this can go from being a relatively straightforward kind of calculation to do we do this or do we do that where it suddenly it becomes a matter of do we do this depending on who we have on the field or who we have potentially to put on the field and you know and, and I'll say this and, and you know th- this this is one of the um, when I when I'm talking to you guys about this stuff one of my big questions and you know you know please hit me up on you know please please you know give me any kind of feedback you want so when I'm talking about the analytics of statistical models, you know, I'm always trying to get the right balance between sort of talking about the logic and maybe giving a few more of the technical details. And so when we're talking about, you know, expected value, very quickly we get into the realm of choices or decisions about the type of analyses that you might want to do. A lot of what we've been talking about, the examples are in the realm of binary, yes, no kind of things. You know, do you make the shot? Do you make the kick? Do you Are you successful in converting the two-point try? Okay, so for those of you interested in, in the field, you know, a lot of success in this is going to be based on having a relatively robust statistical toolkit. Uh, one of the things we always teach first or learn first when we're becoming stats folks is linear regression. When we talk about expected value of a lot of different sports activities, we need to extend our toolkit into well, into tools like logistic regression. So having an ability to forecast the probability of an action happening. And I, I think I'll I think I'll leave it for there. You know, with with the key thought being that, you know, when we start to wanna to, when we when we go down the path of wanting to value you know, a given decision, this is going to be one of those initial points where our standard statistical models of linear regression, and I say standard because linear regression you can run this stuff on Excel, and so it tends to be relatively accessible. But when we move to these models to predict binary outcomes, logistic regression for example, then very often you're going to need some specialized software. And that's where the analyst starts to need tools such as being able to program in statistical languages like R. Okay. I'll leave a fuller discussion about some of these some of these kind of issues for the budding analyst uh, at a later date. But key point: when we start to talk expected value, very often we start to need slightly advanced statistical tools. Okay. The other thing and this is much more big big picture sort of you know you're gonna go down this path and you really want to think about how doing this stuff right is that very often there's a need to go beyond even having the statistical skills to forecast binary outcomes yes no outcomes make the shot miss the shot make the kick miss the kick type outcomes to being able to let's say more fully analyze not just the action under consideration. Again, three point shot, bunting. Bunting's a good example of this. Uh, another example might be punting a ball in football. Because on some of these, what happens is not just, we're not just concerned with what happens based on some action, some decision made on the field. We're concerned with what happens next. Okay? So, punting. Well, so in the, in the case of baseball, our example was bunting. We take an out and we advance the runner. Okay, well then what happens after that? Well, another batter comes up to play, and what does that batter do? That batter tries to get a hit to advance the runner from the second base to, to actually score a run. What's the probability that he's going to be successful? Okay. That probability is going to be a function likely of who the pitcher is who that batter is, who that, who the following batter might be. Okay. So we can start to get into some really complex models and not just, you know, of, you know, single actions, but sequences of actions. Okay. The case of the punt in the NFL is something that's got a lot of attention over the last few years. Think about the complexity for something like that. You're making a decision to punt or to go for the ball on fourth down. So let's say it's you're on your own forty yard line. The question becomes: Do I punt the ball and maybe put the other team back on their twenty or their ten, or do I go for it? Okay, punting is a good example of this because you can imagine that you know where that ball ends up after that punt versus a let's say a failed attempt to go for um, to go for it on fourth down. Can to a fan, really feel like it's dramatically changing the game. Okay, So in one scenario, you punt the ball, you pin them back deep in their territory, feels like you got the advantage, right? Versus you go for it from your 40 yard line, you don't get that last yard, and you turn the ball over in your territory. Okay, Where this becomes, and again the mathematics, we, we quickly get into terminology like dynamic optimization or Markov decision processes, really involves figuring out what happens after that discrete action after that punt what happens what's the value in terms of what do we expect to have happen in terms of you know what occurs on the nfl on the nfl football field for 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 that one given exam okay so i'm gonna I'm, i'm gonna leave it here purpose to the you know sort of this follow-up to the conversation about Alex's um, project on three-point shooting was to put some context to it, both academic and, thankfully, practical or practitioner context, of where can you take these kind of interesting questions, where can you take them in terms of going to a next level on them, where can you take them in terms of applying more advanced techniques? the basic notion of expected value will get you a long way right the basic insight that when you look at an action you gotta figure out what it's worth relative to some alternative action but the bigger picture in terms of getting to let's say the next level or really being good at this stuff is being able to figure out the the expected value of the sequence that follows from a given action whether or not it's successful or a failure okay so you know, as always, guys. You know, you let me know what you think about where we're going with the podcast. Um, we are trying. I'm trying to give you guys a fairly rounded view of a lot of things, from you know talking to talking to people that are actually doing this stuff for a living, and then giving you some context on the back end for how to think about the big picture of of what we're talking about. And part of the reason why I want to give you that big picture is because as you guys, you know, I assume there's a lot of folks that are interested in pursuing careers or doing this kind of stuff as a hobby. That big picture can help you, you know, see the right direction for getting to the stuff to the next level. Okay. So, as always, guys, appreciate everyone listening. Till next time. Thanks much. Bye.